Players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Lion's Eye Diamond, Dark Ritual, Mother of Runes, and many others. Battling head-to-head -head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by the minds behind Bashanral on YouTube, Thurban University, and TheEpicStorm.com. Hello, and welcome to episode 65 of the Eternal Glory podcast, Neo, You're the One. I'm Phil Gallagher, joined as always by Bryant and Brian. How are you all doing tonight? Just great, Phil. Are you ready to talk about Neo? I'm excited for this set. Like, not just like, I have a podcast, so I have to say I'm excited about every set sort of things. Like, no, like, this is going to be a lot of fun. I'm super looking forward to these cards. Wait, 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 hold up. Have you not been excited about previous sets, Phil? I mean, is that what was just revealed here? What? No, like, sometimes it's like, yeah, okay, here's the, here's the two to five cards that are playable in a format that I care about. And now this set is is just, like, gassed, but in a way that I think is acceptable and good, rather than, like, Modern Horizons 2 or some of the other previous sets just kind of setting formats on fire. I think we have a lot of very powerful, very cool cards that I'm really looking forward to playing with. Quote me later if this set sets a bunch of formats on fire, but I'm not expecting that yeah you get you get like the throne of eldraine war of the spark modern horizons 2 like obvious legacy is different now moments and then you get the adventures of the forgotten realm midnight hunt crimson vow runs where it's like is a single card in those sets played there's like aserac and end the festivities across those three sets total hold, hold on um o oswald fiddlebender i got one more okay yep uh we're, we're already deep in the tank until <laughs> phil has a deeper tank he has a sub tank under the deep tank yeah uh, like you get runs like those two and i think neon destiny is gonna hit all of the formats that we like on this podcast without breaking any of them if you're a regular listener of the podcast you'll notice that we don't usually do spoiler episodes they tend to not perform very well and everybody does them that said neon dynasty is such a different beast that we felt like it was necessary and i know that phil and i are both really excited to talk about the impact on popper as well i i'm just gonna speak for brian i'm guessing brian's pumped about that too brian how you feeling very excited uh we have Shouted out Alex Allman on our Popper episodes, and uh, he is one of the faces of Popper worldwide. And the other day he tweeted that this set is Popper Horizons, and he is right. Like, you can't actually print a set that's all commons, or else, like, booster packs wouldn't function, and that, that's just, like, not how magic is structured. But this set, if they were to print a set directly into Popper, it would look like this. Oh, yeah. Like, we're probably going to talk about like what two four like 10 ish cards and that's just the best stuff like that's the stuff that makes the podcast and there's so many more that are going to see fringe play all right so um i guess i'll start with life updates i'm playing in a DD campaign that is really in godbuster territory uh we just leveled up to 17 and we probably have three to four big fights left before the campaign ends. So probably in the next two to three months, I'm going to be reaching the end of my first D&D campaign, which is super exciting. But the, the fights are just like these these absolutely 
wild, insane fighting demon lords who are summoning all sorts of stuff battles. Uh, and it's it's been so much fun. Good for you going all the way to the the top levels. All of my campaigns, my GM like wrapped them up around level nine. And he's like, yeah, this is about to start going Super Saiyan. So we're just going to call it. Good job, everyone. We've gone so far Super Saiyan that we're like probably beyond anything physically printed in D&D media being reasonable for us to fight anymore. The DM keeps sending the stat blocks for the monsters he's creating for us to all his other friends. And their response is just like, how is that a reasonable encounter? How can people possibly kill that? And he's just like, yeah, it'll take him four or five rounds. It's fine. Nice. Yeah. B big fan. Love that for you. But we are constantly flirting with, if one of these fights goes wrong, we're all dead. And there is no coming back. Um, so it's been very fun tension. That is exciting. I, I like when the puzzle or like working together or figuring out what the weakness is or what the hack is or whatever is actually important much more than combat based like I, I like that part of rpg play oh oh yeah there there has been so much role playing going into these fights where it's just like okay we need to research this enemy's weakness okay we need to find its lair so it's not just all hulk smash shout outs to all the dms of the world who happen to be listening to this like thank you for everything you do we love it I'm not really a Dungeons and Dragons person, but I did play a lot of Final Fantasy games growing up. And one of my favorite things was just running into a boss fight, getting absolutely demolished, doing it again, realizing what may or may not have been effective. And just it's the throwing spaghetti at the wall method. But by the time you finally beat the big monster or boss, you feel so accomplished that like you figured it out on your own. Like I technically owned like that guide for like Final Fantasy X or whatever. And it had the cheat stuff, but like that was the last resort for me and I never wanted to look at it. So I always enjoyed that. It seems like with Dungeons and Dragons, you don't get that because like once you lose, your character's dead. And at least the way that my coworkers campaigns have been described is once you're dead, you don't get to come back next week or they write you in a newer character, but you're super low level compared to everyone else. There's multiple ways to work through that. And we don't need to make this a D&D podcast, but just like very short version. You can run away. That's an option. Like My GM has definitely been like, uh, just so you guys know, the door's still open behind you. Wink, wink. Like when it's, <laughs> when it's starting to get dicey and we're like, oh yeah, good idea. And we run away, lick our wounds and come up with a new plan or just go a different route. My GM has also come up with like, I mean, sometimes he just kills you and it's like, all right, roll up a new character. We'll meet you in the next town and you can join us. Or... I've also seen him like, okay, you, you see like a pinprick of light reopening like the blackness uh, of in your eyes and you hear a voice, you can return, but it will cost you. And then they're like, yes. And then they can continue playing their character missing an arm or something where like the demon lord gave you second life, but not for free. Or like they just randomly go crazy once in a while, but they get to continue playing their character. So there's there's workarounds and, and things to do, but your GM's not just going to murder you like you have to make bad decisions to end up in that spot. Anyway, welcome to the D&D &D podcast. <laughs> Speaking of murder, <laughs> Bryant, how are things on your end? I've been watching a show all about murder the last two weeks. The After Party debuted on Apple TV, and if you're familiar with Parks and Recreation, Jean-Ralphio is by far the best character in it. I will not hear any other opinions on that, while Ben Schwartz is a main character in the After Party. And the wife and I watched the four episodes that have been released. We've watched them all again three total times looking for clues, and every time we rewatch, we notice new things, and the 
person that we thought murdered, it changes every time we watch it. Like, it's just so good and captivating. I would definitely recommend to everyone, Apple TV is only $4.99. This is not a paid ad. It's just the best (laughs) show I've watched in a long time, I promise. Go watch The After Party. Can we get Apple to sponsor this pod? Like, Apple, (laughs) Steve Jobs Ghost, if you're listening, please haunt whoever's making that decision right now. But just like since it came up naturally, like companies, tournament organizers, and people of that ilk, if you're looking for some advertising space, we're here. We're probably affordable. I mean, like, we're definitely affordable. Reach out. We'd be happy to talk about it. Especially Steve Jobs Ghost, but also living normal people who might be listening to this. Look, I, I will take sponsorship deals from other planes. Like, I'm, I'm good with it. I will accept ghost money as long as I can spend it in the ghost world. And then another uh, life update. And I'm sure Phil talked about this last year. Phil bought himself a nice Herman Miller, likes to throw it in my face all the time. That Phil has this nice, comfy, ergonomic chair. I finally got rid of the crappy, like, $70 Ikea chair that I had. It had, like, two pads on them that, like, helped my back a little bit. I finally bought a nice chair. Granted, it's not a Herman Miller. But when you Google, like, best chairs of 2021, it is the top chair in a number of searches. I've never heard of the brand before, but it's called Branch. And, uh like tree branch. I've been in it for three days and my back feels amazing. I don't know why I waited this long to take care of myself. I could have afforded this a while ago. I love it. I'm glad you brought that up. Herman Miller or branch. If you're out there, (laughs) I'm glad you brought up back pain and being old naturally, because the only thing I've been dealing with for the past week is my girlfriend suggested we go ice skating last weekend, which is like not a thing that I do. It's not a thing that I'm excited about doing. And I have very fragile bones in general. They call it glass hands in boxing, where like if I punch something, I'm going to walk away with like broken hands. It's not like a medical condition. It's just like the way some people are built. Like any time in my life I've hit something, I hurt for days. And that that is like a thing that I know about myself. I've broken wrists, broken legs, uh, snowboarding, skateboarding. I lived that life. Uh, Tony Hawk's pro skater was the biggest thing on earth when I was a kid, and I did not miss my opportunity to get hurt in the driveway. So suggesting to a 34-year-old man who's not in the best of shape that maybe we go ice skating, I was like, ugh, I've been fading this request for four years. I guess I can give into it, and I don't really have an excuse. And on the fourth lap around the skating rink, I flipped completely backwards like a cartoon, landed directly on my coccyx, which is the triangular bone at the tip of your spine that connects your butt to your body. And that shot up into my brain, not my spine, but like the pain and discomfort of it. And so I've been limping around the last couple days. Uh, The pain is slowly depleting, but like lifting my leg to put my socks on is still a chore in the morning. Uh, Getting in and out of chairs is like, oh, here we go. And that has been miserable. And I got a massage today, like just shortly before we started recording, actually, I got a 90 minute massage and this girl found and sucked pain out of places I didn't know that I had. She like turned my head in a certain way and like dug her fingers like in between, like the muscles you can feel on your neck where you're like, oh yeah, those are my neck muscles. No, there's more. There's more under those. And she knows how to find them and bring them out. If you have If you've ever had a sore part of your body and you just like rub it and you know that like twang of like electric sharp pain you get like when you push into a bruise or something, she exacted that out of my entire upper body. And she was like touching spots in my neck that made my leg hurt. And it was like, what is going on right now? I feel kind of amazing right now. It was one of those like, 
walk through the fire and emerge unburnt, like Daenerys the unburnt. Like, that's me right now. I'm the mother of dragons. Everything feels good, though it feels bad. I'm so jealous. That is on my list of things that I want to treat myself to once I feel like I'm comfortable being out there in the world and, like, not just having, like, oh, but COVID just lingering over my head. Yeah, I live a very uh, simple life, a very blue-collar life. Uh, we, Growing up, we didn't really have extravagances. We we ate, like, the store-brand ketchup and everything, and, like, the idea of springing for Heinz or whatever is just, like, that's not part of me and my life. And now, being in my 30s and financially stable and realizing, like, oh, I can just go spend $150 to get rubbed down for 90 minutes. Like, I can do that once in a while. It's a nice realization. And then when you actually pull the trigger and make the appointment, it's it's so worth it. So happy with that decision. All right. Have, uh, we kind of covered everything in our life updates. That's all I got. I'm old and broken. And if you see me at SCG Philly this weekend limping around, that's why. My coccyx hurts. Old and broken. I think that describes a lot of us, Brian. Speaking of broken, donations. Henrik Korkutz, you are broken. Thank you for your contribution to the Eternal Glory podcast. Corkuts is broken. Like, seriously, that's a name we say a lot in the donations. And I want to personally shout out Henrik for the constant support of keeping this podcast on the air. I am going to butcher this next name. Uh, Vale Trujillo? Trujillo? I-, I can't talk. Yeah, these these always mess with me because I'm a Latin teacher. So I always want to like pronounce them like W's. This, this name is spelled V-A-L-E, which I think is either like Vale or maybe Vale. But in in Latin, that's literally a word pronounced wale. That means goodbye. I am unsure how to pronounce your name, friend, but thank you very much for supporting the podcast. Shout out to Force of Phil, who does our editing, who will probably have to fix our intro since uh, I butchered it so many times. Phil, I appreciate you. What it do, baby? Yeah, you already know. Thank you. No, wait. Other Phil. Seriously, Phil, you're great. All right. Um, moving on to MTG updates. Um, I guess I'll start since I'm already talking here. I started doing some like early release videos for my YouTube members, oddly, because I had someone who was shipping out to the military and they they sent me a donation and was like, hey, Phil, no hurry on this. Uh, you know, I'm going I'm leaving for basic training on Friday. You know, I'm not going to see this for two months. And I was just like, absolutely not. Like I am recording your your deck today. I'll put it up for YouTube members. You can watch it before you go. And so that kind of got me into this mood where i was like ah let's let's give the youtube members something a little extra and there was some extra strategy content uh for them as well i was just like really happy to be able to like meet someone and say like i appreciate what you said but but like no i can i can do this for you feels good man um i on the note of like donation decklist i also had to update my model i don't think i was charging enough and my donation queue was just getting unmanageable i'm i'm okay with it being two or three weeks before your thing hits the channel but it was starting to get to the point where it was like a month and i was just like okay we gotta we gotta do something about this so i i bumped all my my price tiers up five bucks and i also added a lower price tier where i was just like hey if you want me to just like play whatever and just like support one of my videos and you don't care here's a dealer's choice tier and i can just like record those at my convenience when i'm at a slow week or whatever and i think i hope the combination of those two things will get me to the point where it's not as crazy of a wait time to get your deck on air because like a month between when you submit it and when it gets played that that's an eternity and i know like brian you're you're fighting with the same thing i am yeah when you're like i'm okay with two or three weeks i like frantically churn to keep my queue at eight weeks just like uh, it could it would probably be 10 or 12 or beyond like i closed public donations like you need to be a subscribing patreon member 
to get access to donating more to get on the channel and that barely barely slowed it down at all and i have also been recently considering upping the price uh, eric virgo said to me like probably a year ago he asked how long it would take to get on the channel and i was like six to eight weeks he's like if it's six to eight weeks you're not charging enough I'm like yeah you're probably right and i did raise the price and it barely did anything yeah i would rather the price slowly creep up than for me to just like womp you know, it just went up 20 bucks. I, I want to value my time, but I also want to make sure that I stay at least somewhat accessible. You two don't get enough credit. So sometimes in, you get donation decks that aren't the greatest. You can try to make them better, but they're still not that competitive or even sometimes that interesting. You two play them with a smile on your face. Well, at least Phil does. I don't know about Brian. I when I get when I receive these decks, I feel miserable. And then I go back and watch the video. I'm like, I look miserable, too. I don't like playing giant piles of, you know, dung. So you two just like do it so professionally. And I always think that whenever you upload a video that I know like this deck isn't competitive and I click in and I watch I'm like, yeah, they're just like more professional than I am because that would make me miserable. And I like playing decks that I'm interested in. So I like Brian finds time to record Shark still, even though Brian's like three months out on like donation decks. And I find that like, do you guys want to record your, you know, your decks more often? Are you do you feel that you can't because of your donation queue? I guess that's my question. Why don't, why don't you start? I'll go second here. Yeah, I kind of take the tattoo artist approach where like someone walks in with like a busted idea and they want it on their face. And you're like, oh, how about we uh, clean up this sketch and then maybe talk about this nice open arm you know like where it's like i want your business but i don't want to do that for you i've talked about like massaging the queue a little bit where if it's like something hot for shark still is in the new set i i will push the recording queue back to inject something i want or i have a number of really generous patrons anyone who's like buying a donation league one off is going to want me to play their deck but I have the recurring Patreon tier where you just get one every month. And I have a lot of people who are just sort of like, you know, dealer's choice this month. I'm not in love with anything. Go ahead. And I will move those around. If you give me a dealer's choice, by the way, Patreon patrons, if you're listening, if you give me a dealer's choice, you're likely to see it a lot sooner because I will use that to sneak in when I need to do something for my brand. And I will just use their league and give them credit for it. I will 100% confirm every time I get a dealer's choice donation deck list, that gets recorded within a week or so. That gives me the chance to find something new, hot, interesting, and kind of slip it in there. Yeah, I'm also lucky with uh, one of the major supporters of my channel, Spunky. If you've watched any of my $500 playoffs, it was his $500 fueling that thing. He's put thousands into me and my channel in the past year and a half. He likes the decks that I want to play. The, like, if you come into my DMs and you're like, I'll give you $500 to play off against Rich Cali, that's happening this week. And it's airing next week, period. Like, I'll, I'll make that happen for you. I'll move things around. So I, I am lucky that I have the generous Dealer's Choice Patreon patrons. And then I also have the super patron of Spunky who comes in and he's just like, I want you to play three leagues with Bant. Make it happen. I'm like, yes, sir. <laughs> They'll be up tomorrow. I've transitioned to almost none of my specialty decks on my channel. So like my my content was originally 100% death and taxes and then it became like 100% or 90% death and taxes, 10% red prison and it just kind of like sh slowly shifted over time. So like my original target audience was, you know, the 250 people worldwide who like really really gave a shit about death and taxes. And now my target audience is like anyone who enjoys watching high level 
magic play with somewhat quirky rotating decks. So like, I don't know offhand when the last time I played Death and Taxes was, but it was probably three weeks a month ago or or more. Like I've done tutoring sessions, I've helped people learn the deck, but as far as like, would I be comfortable playing Death and Taxes in an event tomorrow? No, I would have to sit down and do some work first. I very rarely play decks of my own choosing at this point. Kind of is, is what it is. Yeah, something you said uh, in that, that conversation reminded me, I had a like business talk with Spunky a couple days ago. We were on a Discord call for an hour and a half. Uh, he is a business person in real life and esports supporter and stuff, like runs multiple YouTubes, ran a League of Legends esports team at some point. Like he's in the industry. The first thing he asked me was, how many people want to watch Legacy? Like if you made a piece of content that every single person on the planet clicked on, how many views would that be? And I had never even thought of that before. Like what what is the pool that we're appealing to? Like you just said, the, the pool of entrenched DNT players versus the pool of people willing to be entertained by legacy card pool is a very big leap. Brian, that circles back to what you said too, where it's like you want to do well with combo. Like what's the pool of people who want to see you do well with combo? Versus the pool of people who are like, LOL, that 05 was a blast. I, Phil and I have fully embraced those people. I will also say in my own defense, I think I've 05'd on the channel twice, maybe three times out of 500 videos I've recorded. Like 05s don't really happen. I will take a pile. Like I, I have different, different cost tiers. Like if you send me a list that's just garbage, I will charge you the brew amount and I'll fix it. Like I, I will never just take an unplayable deck. But I'm usually good for a 2-3-3-2 two, three, three, two with those absolute, like, what are they doing here? Like, I'll make it happen in at least one or two matches. I've gotten a couple where I finished round four at 0-4 and I'm like, okay, we're going to stop and then we're going to really debrief this and talk about what went wrong rather than playing out the last round. I get one of those every three months or something like that. But given some of the just crazy stuff that i play like that's pretty good i've never bought ticks on magic online right like i'm still going infinite playing all of this jank at the end of the day amen to that and i i gotta say when you're recording a league a day sometimes two leagues a day like i have play points to play on i don't look at my ticks i don't look at my treasure chests and once in a while like every couple months i'll like sell them all and then i'll have a bunch of ticks i don't remember when the last time i sold them was and I looked in my like other objects folder on MTGO this week. I was expecting I would probably have like 40 treasure chests or so built up. It was like 120. <laughs> Apparently I've been doing well lately or it's just been longer or the grind is just easy. I don't know. I actually think the league structure is so generous. Like 3-2 is profit, even if it's not much. Like 3-2 profit is, uh, they, they could be so much harsher and they have been in the past. Like I remember Magic Online, you need needed to be like actual winning and not just like 50 50 i i love magic online i don't know where that devolved from but oh like we we went on a tangent to a tangent to a tangent there so like people are gonna love or hate this episode before we even get to the content i mean this is all content <laughs> I, I used to like when the league structure was four one for a payout it was 12 tickets to enter instead of 10 you had to four one or better leagues were super competitive and i really liked that because now, I mean, I'm trying to build my deck list to win larger events, and I queue up, and you just get paired into decks that have no right, like, you would never face this deck 
deep in a tournament run. But all of a sudden, they're playing four main deck Trinospheres alongside... I'm not trying to make fun of Phil here. I'm trying really hard not to. But, like, some some creature you wouldn't expect. Literally any deck that I play on my channel that I get paid to play. I get it. I know what I'm about currently. I, Phil, this is a real story. This week, I was playing a match. My opponent goes turn one basic force, and my immediate thought is elves. Chrome mocks. I'm like, oh, fuck. Sylvan plug. They then imprint... Uh, shifting ceratops and i immediately typed in chat you must watch thraben you and they said who's that wow <laughs> there's a dagger for you phil and then they chalice me so great story that's like the the pokemoki school of thought as well like i know since ragavan got banned he's been loving the leagues where just delvers everywhere and everyone's playing competitive and trying really hard to solve the new meta i love just the the fnm feel of low stakes leagues because I, it's my opinion that your deck should beat bullshit. If you're going to show up with a legacy deck, it should beat random bullshit or else like like if you're playing real legacy and you're losing to fake legacy, however you define those things in your head, your real legacy deck should beat fake legacy decks. And I understand that you uh being a combo player, if people just show up with combo in their sights like if they're on that like four null round four collector roof chrome mox chalice trinosphere deck, that's going to be a bad time for you. Uh, maybe it's just like my style, like that the the strong blue base, like Miracles, Stoneblade, Sharkstill, Bant, like whatever my brand is at that year. I, I just build to sweep up that garbage. It's like, oh, wow, you have three chalices in play on zero, one, and two on turn one. That's pretty impressive. I'll cast the front half of Uro. What's your plan, idiot? Like that, that's just kind of the magic I want to play. And that translates into big events. Like you, you talk about like practicing for big events. I don't want to play against garbage. Like, you got to survive the first three rounds before you're in that winner's metagame is what it is. Yeah, I agree with you. In basically every competitive event I've ever played in with death and taxes, I am more scared in rounds one through three than any other round. Those are the scariest rounds. Like, it's not even close. Every time I get paired against like a Nick Fit player, I'm just like, am I going to lose to Pernicious Deed today? Like, am I just going to like eat a top deck that 10 for ones me? And I just like am in the loser's bracket as of round one. Or can I make it to round three where I play against Delver for the rest of the day and then like I just take my money and go home? Yeah, I mean, that sort of happened to me. Uh, I will dovetail this back into the the topic. I was just going to say I've been playing a lot of Paper Magic lately. The, uh, Titan Game Shop ran their monthly legacy for real estate. Buffalo Chicken Dip happened at CG Phillies this coming weekend. There's the Titan Game Shop Super Spectacular is the weekend after that. I'm playing a lot of Paper Magic right now. At the Buffalo Chicken event, I... Lost round one. I, I made a, a small mistake in a really well-played game of four-color Bant versus uh, green-white depths. I took sort of like a high percentage line. I guess this is legacy content. I can, can go into it. I had Jace in play. Like I was getting, I was choked and I was getting beaten down by Knight of the Reliquary. But that's all that was going on on the other side. And I resolved a Jace, bounced the Knight, and then they just replayed Knight past. So I have Jace on two loyalty. My hand is like ponder, ponder, brainstorm. And I have mana open and I'm like, all of my prismatic endings and three of my swords of plowshares are still in the deck right now. I'll find one. And I'm like, brainstorm with Jace, miss, ponder, miss, ponder, miss, brainstorm, fetch, brainstorm finds ponder, ponder, miss, pass the turn, Jace dies tonight. And then I lose the game. In that moment, like I could have just bounced knight again. We play this turn cycle over again. I'm a card deeper into my deck and Jace is at one now. Now it's time to act. And I, I could have just done that, but I, I took the, the big swing and I lost for it. So now I'm in the loser's bracket already. 
it's round two. I beat somebody. Then in round three, I play against Sneak and Show. And it's just like, this is not a deck on my radar. It's not a deck anyone's playing. Sneak and Show is like legacy royalty going back throughout history. A lot of respect for that deck's place in history, but I think it sucks ass right now. My opponent didn't get the memo. On the draw, I just like keep this handful of interaction and he's like, Ancient Tomb, Lotus Petal, show until you're dead. I'm like, okay. And then uh, game two, uh, he's like, land go. I keep a hand of like Flusterstorm, uh, run afoul, and like mana, I'm set up with mana. I have Caracas. And I'm like, I'm just rolled up. And he's like, land go. And then turn two, he's like, Ancient Tomb, Lotus Petal, crack petal for red. I'm like, God damn it. Blood Moon. My deck has no basic lands. So I'm looking at uh, Flusterstorm, run afoul, Caracas, and all of these interactive spells. I'm just like, Okay, I'm dead. Sounds like your deck should have been able to beat it, Brian. I know. Uh, and <laughs> after the event, I switched out the uh, extra Withered Bloom command in my sideboard for a carp- uh, Force of Vigor. I adjusted my sideboard plan to bring in my Carpet of Flowers. You could play that on turn one and beat Blood Moon later. And I did have Hydro Blast, and I ma- my stupid ass looked. It was the top card in my deck after I got Blood Moon. But like all those things aside, like my point is that I did not build for Blood Moon because Blood Moon is not really part of the legacy metagame it's starting to show up in the jeskai control decks but they're not going to jam it on turn one uh you get to play the game leading up to that point but i just didn't plan for that i wouldn't have seen it if i didn't lose round one but there it is your tournament's over it's always the scariest shit in in those early rounds especially if you're in the loser's bracket then it's scary into like round four and five so a philosophy that i've had over the last few years is and brian very accurately described it is you should be able to beat those pile decks but sometimes they're just built to beat you and you lose right like that happens i am looking to beat the winner's metagame in a majority of tournaments because i'd rather win first place than come in 32nd and i feel like a lot of people play 50/50 type decks so like stoneblade for example is like the legacy epitome of a 50/50 deck against the entire field where i want to come in first or i want to be able to drive home early those are like that's my goal like i don't really care if i come in 32nd or whatever so if i lose round number 2 to tin fins i'm like ah, that sucked but you know if i win out maybe i can you know get there if i lose number three to model green chalice of the void with main deck collector oofs i go sweet i guess i can get drunk tonight and drive home tomorrow morning like that's a better experience for me i'm not saying it's correct but that's how i'd rather approach the game i'm glad you added tomorrow morning to the end of that sentence you had me really nervous like i get to get <laughs> drunk and drive home it's like jesus christ brent it's no not that you bad. have to be responsible Brian. round four is versus dead guy ale I, I would like to shout out real quick the old Jupiter Games events that were held at a VFW that was literally a bar. There was just a bar in the VFW, and O2 Bar was like a thing that people did. I, I, I don't drink, I don't do drugs, never have, and I don't judge people who do, but let me tell you, sitting down when I'm just like trying to get my reps in against someone who is sheets to the fucking wind, they're just like woozy in their seat, and just like stink of booze, they're in like a Mets jersey and it's just like whoa just like come on man it's round five (laughs) like we're two and two like i'm just here for fun and you're like hiccuping onto your goblins like i'm (laughs) i I did not like that experience i wonder if we ever played at those back then i went to a lot of those events i don't think we played but i remember you being around i also remember i I randomly had this thought the other day sorry phil uh i'm I'm down a rabbit hole now Uh, i thought about gp providence from 2010 or 2011 that legacy gp where jupiter games regulars because we we were playing more legacy than anyone on the planet at that time like there was just a legacy tournament for 40 duels every month 
sometimes twice a month. GP Providence 2010, I, I think Jupiter Games regulars took home 50% of the money available at that tournament. This, the entire GP prize pool just came back to upstate New York with us. That was awesome. Anyway, I'm done going down memory lane. All right. Are, are we prepared to actually hop into content here? Or I, actually, Bryant, I think we haven't actually covered your big win here. Wow. All right. Uh, not really. I caught myself. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Neon Dynasty. Let's. <laughs> I've had back to back just terrific video days. So I've gotten a taste of what it feels like to be Brian or Phil. Obviously, I haven't hit their numbers, but it just feels really good. I uploaded this like spicy Zubera Storm Popper video. Zubera Storm is a deck that used to be really popular before Ikoria came out, where Cycle Storm gained all of its really good cyclers and before Modern Horizons 2, so before Relay. Like, the Zubera Storm deck was everywhere, and while well, since then it's gotten Village Rights and Deadly Dispute, so it's pretty good now. Uh, definitely go check that out. And then I released the new version of the Epic Storm that is what Brian just described is not what he wants to be playing. It's built to beat blue decks, so it would pumble Mr. Koval over there, hopefully. But yeah, so those drop, they're both, like, popping off. Definitely go check those out. And then Brian gets a shout-out since he recommended making scannable Storm Tokens. They took over a month to travel due to all the shipping delays, but they arrived and I love them. So, Brian, thank you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting mine done. I commissioned three pieces of art in early December, maybe even late November at this point. It, it, it's been a long time. Two of them came back and they're phenomenal. And one of the artists, I commissioned them from three different artists, and one of the artists just like went through a difficult breakup and needed to fix their housing situation. And then their ex wanted the computer that they did all their art on in like breakup world. And like, it was, it's just like a whole fucking thing. And kudos to them. I'm not like complaining about their work or anything. Like it just, it's an unfortunate life situation that has delayed printing my tokens. But I, I do have two dope pieces of art waiting on a third and- I hope to unveil those soon. And I don't know about the two of you, but I just went through and did my magic taxes, the exciting part of the podcast. And uh, the accountant that I used was so excited to receive mine. And I, I mean, she's probably not actually excited, but she's like, everything you do is so organized. Throughout the year, I update my spreadsheet whenever I make a sale or get a payment from YouTube or an affiliate payment, whatever, I update everything immediately. So I just don't have to do any work at the end of the year. She's just like, this is one of the most organized spreadsheets I get at the end of every season. So it just felt nice that my like petty work, somebody else appreciated, I guess. Nice. I'm going to give my accountant whatever is sent to me in the mail. And because there, there's a large amount of my business that is just like friends and family PayPal that the government doesn't need to know about. Uh, so uh, I'm I'm trying to keep that separate, but not on not really on purpose. I just don't really even know how to track it because I didn't. But I'm gonna give them any tax document that came in the mail and say, "Here you go, figure it out." IRS, if you're listening, please do not come after Brian Koval. Yeah, don't audit me. Everything is on the books. I I report my stuff that goes through PayPal. I just like there's there's a lot of it. There's a there's a lot. I don't know. I don't I don't want to play that game. I don't want to get the uh, the metaf metaphorical judge call from the U.S. government. Phil, why were you winking the whole time? Was that a tell or a sign? Yep. I also wink, wink, will be declaring everything. Wink, wink.
I don't know. No, I'm not. Maybe I will. Maybe you no, just I'm, talk I'm, me into I'm, it. I'm serious. My lighting is just awful in this room. Oh, we are we are fucking with you, Phil. We know you're serious. And uh, you probably just convinced me to do the same. I'm grumpy about it. Yeah. The first couple of years I was streaming, it's it was like, okay, I'm getting pennies. It doesn't matter. And now it's like, oh, okay. So each one of these is like 50 bucks. Okay. That adds up to how much over a year? Oh, okay. This is a real story. And I know that we want to get to magic content soon, but it's a real story. 2012, which is a year after I graduated from college, being young and out of college, still living at home with my parents because my real job didn't pay that much, making $30,000 a year, not a whole lot of money. I went on a tear on the SCG circuit. I received roughly $6,000 from them in one year, which was really good for me at the time. I'm like, oh, I have all this extra money. I'm going to dump it into my student loans, try to pay that off more quickly. Well, come tax season, I didn't claim that money because I didn't think you had to. I won that money. It was mine, right? Well, uh, the IRS disagreed and I was audited. And they were just like, fun fact, you owe us this large sum of money. And uh, young Bryant that wasn't making a whole lot of money per week didn't have that money to pay. So it took me like half a year to pay them back. It sucked. So don't get audited and... uh, Pay what you owe, I guess. That's the moral here. Yeah, I I will accept any mistakes that are my fault in doing taxes, but I don't want to just like hide a bunch of money and get caught. (laughs) Cowards, cowards. Not worth it. Fine, fine. You talk me into it. IRS, if you're listening, you don't have to look. I'm I'm starting the the fucking spoiler portion of the show. <laughs> you all can't stop. Me. I know you have much to say about this first card. All right. Um. So we're gonna break this section of the podcast sort of in two. First, we're gonna talk about like eternal focused spoilers, and then we're gonna talk about popper focused stuff. And we're going to begin with Lion Sash. Um. Someone else read it because I'm probably okay. gonna talk about it. For I, a long time. I will take on the reading the cards responsibility. Lion Sash, one and a white artifact creature dash equipment cat. Only equipment cat in magic? I hope so. Asika's chariot is jealous. Okay, uh, one white, uh, that is white, not one in a white. Single mana, white mana, colon, exiled target card from a graveyard. If it was a permanent card, put a plus one, plus one counter on Lion Sash. We got a kind of a scavenging news impression there. Equipped creature gets plus one, plus one for each plus one, plus one counter on Lion Sash. And it has reconfigure, which is the new, uh, it's equipped, but for creatures. All of the reconfigure cards are creatures on their own, but you can also equip them to different creatures. It's worth noting, reconfigure does work with Magnetic Theft and Sigarda's Aid. Anything that would equip uh, essentially works with reconfigure. And you can then uh, reconfigure to unattach it from a creature as well, and then turn it back into a creature which is kind of the big thing that differentiates it from normal equipment. Yes. Yeah, you can you can simply unconfigure it. <laughs> Just take it off. And it works the same way as equipment. So, uh if your Thalia is carrying a Lion Sash with 3 plus 1 counters on it and Thalia dies, your 4/4 four, four is still in play. Okay. The immediate home for this card is in Death and Taxes, and it will be a reasonable magic card there. Within the context of Death and Taxes, this is a piece of tutorable graveyard hate that is tutorable both by Recruiter of the Guard and Stoneforge Mystic. I have seen people hyping this card to high heaven, and while I think this is a playable legacy card, I think this will be a fine card in Death and Taxes, I think people have given this card way too much praise, and I want to kind of like put on the brakes a little bit and kind of do a reality check. So... 
first off, how many scavenging oozes do you see play, like played in Legacy right now? You you see it from time to time, but it's not a staple, right? Faster or more flexible graveyard hate is just better. When you are paired against Reanimator, your your Lion Sash is probably not the thing that is saving you. And Death and Taxes decks are often even playing things like Leyline of the Void now to just like not get turned one by some of these graveyard combo decks. Another issue with this card is that it costs a white mana in order to activate this. So when you are trying to curve out with this card, either by playing it on turn two or by like trying to put like play recruiter on turn three and then put this in, you don't necessarily have the mana to activate this immediately. This is a very slow card, and this is not necessarily the best mana sink in the world. It requires a white mana, which means that your Rashadden ports, your Wastelands, your other uh, insert X greed mana, voice, mana base choice of death and taxes at any time card is not going to be able to pump this thing up. And right now, white removal is sort of like the legacy standard. And it really sucks to pump a billion mana in this card, and then your opponent taps a single white mana and sorts the plowshares it, path to exiles it, or two mana for prismatic ending. And you lose out on just so much investment in this card in terms of both like turn count and mana. And also, this is a piece of equipment that is just going to die to everything. In addition to the stuff that kills creatures, all of your artifact hate is going to kill this card as well. And sometimes you're going to have a piece of equipment and like you're going to you're going to try to like treat this as an equipment and someone's going to source the plowshares in response to your equip on your actual equipment. Um I think this card is is going to see play, but I think people are putting too much stock in this card. I agree with you that it will see play. I don't know if people are putting too much stock in or an appropriate amount. I don't have a real strong opinion on that. Where I do want to just bring up a couple points. I don't think it's going to be enough against Reanimator, and you addressed that. That said, from the Reanimator perspective, because I have played it recently, Death and Taxes is scary because that whole Karakas card. They're really good at slowing the game down between having Swords to Plowshares and Solitude, Karakas. They can usually answer the first Reanimator threat. So I think where Lion Sash is actually useful is the follow-up. So they've answered the first one. They get the Lion Sash into play. Lion Sash does its bad scavenging ooze impression. That's pretty sweet. The second point where I think Lion Sash is pretty useful in that matchup is if you're the reanimator player, you have some effects in your sideboard. Recently, Serenity has seen a lot of play, but it's only a two of. The card that they play four of is, oh, why am I blanking on the name? Reverent Silence, which doesn't hit Lion Sash, and they're already boarding in Reverent Silence to hit the Ley Lines. So being able to split up your graveyard hate like that is very effective. So... I think it's going to be fine. A lot of people are overhyping it, and I do agree that the best card to compare it to is Scavenging Ooze. They're both tutorable, similar effect. Is Ooze really that playable? It's like a one of in Elves now and sometimes in Maverick. So a role player, and sometimes that's just what you want out of a Legacy set, is a few role players. This card is probably in every or almost every Death and Taxes 75 moving forward. Like, it will do stuff. Like, when you get into those mid-rangey graveyard matchups and you're like, oh, okay, like, as long as they don't get the Uro too quickly, I can use this to kind of fight against their graveyard, or I can use this to fight against a Murktide Regent before it's in play. Note, before it's in play. Very, very important there. Do not exile cards from your opponent's graveyard and increase the size of their Murktide Regents. That, that, that's going to be bad, right, folks? Yep. So I'm going to jump in and, and just say that 
scavenging ooze, uh, like like Bryant said, scavenging ooze never has beaten Reanimator or Dredge on its own in the history of Legacy. You need like the surgical or the leyline to buy time to get your first three mana into the scavenging ooze, and then you're up and running. Then it's sort of like a passive leyline that's killing them. Uh, and if you're playing to that world against super fast combo, this is obviously not quite gonna fill that gap. I think it's really huge that it just slots so easily into Yorion taxes or any other Stoneblade deck. And you get that like passive mid-game graveyard manipulation, just like your opponent will never have Delirium if this card is in your deck. Uh, Uro is not going to keep coming back. Like The play pattern right now of Uro versus Death and Taxes is like, I put three men into it, get the first card, put four men into it, get the second card, it gets Karakist, then we go again until my graveyard's out of cards, or they find the plow. This thing, just being able to show up and clip the Uro before it shows up uh, the first, the second time, I guess, uh, it's always going to show up the first time, but just really controlling those mid-game passive situations. Like, you're going to love this against any Loam deck. Uh, any, uh, I mean, Hogak's going to be kind of fast, but this will show up if you like Swords to Plowshares, the first couple threats, or lock the Gravecrawlers behind Thalia, plow the Hogak, then tutor up Lion Sash, you're going to take over that game. And there's not really stuff that does that right now. Uh, I, I know, like, historically, you have to, like, Flicker Wisp your Batter Skull to kill your Germ Token to blow up Bridge from below or whatever. Like, those lines exist in the deck but this just cleans up all of those little tricks into one very obvious hammer for that sort of matchup and i think this is not as good as the folks who are saying like oh god this is gonna flip graveyard matchups for death and taxes but it is it is very solid it's a tool that they're gonna use forever so like for people who have been playing legacy for a while you remember five years ago when there were one or two cards from a legacy set that we're going to see play or from a like new standard printing set that we're going to see play and they kind of slotted into fringe positions in legacy that that's what this card is like this is a very good situational card that we'll see play in like a tier one legacy deck i i i also don't want to spend too much time on the first card here but scavenging ooze when that card was printed it was printed in a commander product. It was not in sets. It, you can get them in like every booster pack now in a hundred different treatments and they're basically free. But for a long time, it only existed in the one commander deck and it was hot. It was a card that changed the texture of legacy. It was in a color that kind of needed that effect at a rate that was really palatable. I remember one time being at a game store where I traded a tropical island for a scavenging ooze and a mana drain, or maybe I traded a mana drain for a tropical island and a scavenging ooze. Not sure what the pieces were, but scavenging ooze was in the conversation with tropical island and mana drain on money, monetary value. Like the, it was like a $30, $40 card for a while. And the fact that it's not seeing play now, I think, is more about endurance than it is about scavenging ooze. And white doesn't have endurance. So uh, this isn't apples to apples. This is in a different color and it's in going into a deck that can tutor the hell out of it. So uh, I, I think that comparing this directly to Scavenging Ooze is unfair. And it, it just depends on how much Death and Taxes wants this effect. 
is the only limiting factor here. All right, one more thing on the way out. Uh, just keep in mind, if you're playing Rest in Peace with this card, things could get weird, right? Because you're going to like lose the ability to exile cards from graveyards. So just kind of keep that in mind in your deck building stages. Right. You'll have a 1-1 one, one that can equip as a 1-1. One, one. Good stuff. The next card, Reality Heist. Five blue-blue, so seven total mana for an instant. This spell costs one less to cast for each artifact you control. Sort of like Affinity, right? Look at the top seven cards of your library. You may reveal two artifact cards from them, put them to your hand, put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. Twelve cast, baby. Yeah, so um, for those of you who have been playing Magic for a little bit longer, you might be familiar with the card Dig Through Time. This is kind of an artifact-focused Dig Through Time um it's maybe not like quite as good as dig through time it's not nearly as flexible because this can only specifically get artifact cards but if you're playing this in the deck that can consistently cast this for two mana you you should be hitting two cards in those seven pretty consistently how often does thought monitor cost one in legacy in the eight cast decks as they're currently built like pretty um, often not not frequently in the early game yeah not in the early game uh you need to get off the ground spending three or four on the first thought monitor which draws you into the next thought monitor and something that makes it cheaper uh i I imagine at some point there's a diminishing return but this looks like thought monitor to me Uh, instead of two two body you get to look at way more cards and can only get artifacts Uh, it's it's really interesting. I, I don't know that the eight cast decks are just going to go up to 12 casts or if there's going to just like play one to supplement the existing things. But this looks like Thought Monitor very similarly on its surface to me. A lot more than it looks like to, to dig through time. I think when you first look at this card, you think obviously this card's busted. And then you start to look at how the eight cast deck is constructed. They have four force of will. They play force and negation. There's thought cast. There's twelve cards already, and then you're not counting your lands. So obviously you have like Urza Saga and whatever. I'm not saying that you're going to whiff all the time. I just think there's not as many artifact cards as people think, and there will be situations where you only get one artifact. Uh, I don't think you're gonna you know blank on both out of seven cards very often, but I don't think it's always going to be a guaranteed two, and it's just something that people should think about. Yeah, shout out to the popper players out there who know that Augur of Bolas says, look at the bottom three cards of your deck. That's that's <laughs> the real text on that card. And you're going to heist some reality for zero or one some number of times. I've collected companied into a Birds of Paradise and no other creatures or nothing at all. Uh, the numbers on the this sort of effect are not free. They're not givens. They take significant deck building. And even then, math might get you. You might get seven artifacts. You might get zero. This is the sort of card where if any deck wants to play this, it will be exceptionally good in that deck. And then there will be a lot of people that try this card in some decks, and it just doesn't quite work, either because you don't get the artifact count fast enough, you don't maintain the artifact count, and it will be clunky there. So, um, spitballing. You could try this in a blue painter deck, for example. Like, are you going to have enough artifacts, though, to make this worth the digging that it can do? Uh, maybe not. Yeah, and, and like, just now I'm sort of thinking, I didn't prepare any of these remarks. Uh, like, 
if you build your deck to get artifacts down for the affinity half, like you're just playing all eight baubles or whatever, plus Mox Opal, Chalice of the Void, probably like whatever, uh, then you you've made the juice, you've squeezed the juice, and now you get for your trouble two more baubles. Like what? What's the payoff artifact? Because in the artifact decks, as they're constructed, the payoffs are like Urza, Karn, Hallbreacher, Echo of Aeons. Like what? What artifact are you hitting? Like I, the the nuts feels like two thought monitors. Like you, if you dig into two thought monitors and then you draw four cards to find your Karn and then win. I got. I guess the, there's more to be figured out by the deck building. All right. Um, speaking of deck building, why don't we go on to the next card, which is Patchwork Automaton. Uh, this is two colorless mana for a 1-1 construct creature. It has Ward 2, uh, which means when it's the target of a spell or ability an opponent controls, counter it unless they pay two. And whenever you cast an artifact spell, put a plus one plus one counter on it. What do you all think of this? My first time reading it, I said to myself, why did Phil add this to the spreadsheet? And then I read it a second time, and I went, hmm, that's pretty interesting. So this works with modular, uh, fun fact. So if you're playing Affinity, it's really big pretty quickly, has some built-in protection, and it's reasonably costed. Uh, for a quick second, I, I thought to myself, I could even play this in the Epic Storm. I won't, but I could. Uh, I think it's better than people think. And especially, and Brian, you're the Vintage Master here. This is very castable in Chops. Oh yeah, definitely. Ward 2 is a big deal. Uh, like this comes off of Ancient Tomb, off City of Traders, off of uh, Mox Opal, uh, like the uh, Seed of the Synod Mox Opal Bobble Start gets you two mana. Uh, two mana is a sweet spot in these artifact decks that want to be playing Soul Ran Lands anyway. I guess like the quicker it comes down, the better, obviously. Like you need this thing to come down first and you need it to come down early. If your opponent just has three mana to Swords to Plowshared on turn three, this is going to suck. If you need to like play out your bobble and your mox opal just to get it into play, that's two triggers it's not going to get. So, uh, I mean, this one seems like a lot of things need to line up right, but that's the steel stompy dream, isn't it? Like that deck's already trying to line up everything perfectly. I think the closest comparison, and you're allowed to tell me that I'm an idiot, is Sprite Dragon. Like this is just colorless Sprite Dragon, right? Instead of flying in haste, you have Ward 2. Yeah, it... Yeah, that's a reasonable comparison. I think that Sprite Dragon goes in decks that can cash it out in the mid game where most artifact decks, like if we're looking at like the base obvious place to put this is like Affinity or a Steel Stompy kind of shell that isn't very good. Like like Sprite Dragon, you draw that on turn four, cantrip twice, you're in for three, there's a real threat where you draw this thing on turn four. Your hand's empty. You really needed that thought monitor or whatever goes with this thing. I, I think this has a lot to ask. I, I don't think we're going to see much patchwork automaton in Legacy. Phil, I think you need to write wizards and tell them to print artifact cantrips. That's what I gained from Brian's uh, sentence or two there. <laughs> like, it, <laughs> if you want to build into that world, there's a lot of artifact cantrips. Like, Chromatic Sphere, Chromatic Star, Icker Wellspring, Prophetic Prism. The whole, like, pauper affinity deck, basically, is legal in Legacy. It's just that it doesn't seem like it's worth doing just to pay out this creature that may or may not survive, may or may not resolve. Like, I don't know. It just if you were going to play Affinity, I think there's a lot of creatures I'd put in my deck before this one. And Affinity is not playable currently. Daggers. This this is an uncommon, by the way, that we're talking about. 
This this is a pretty juiced uncommon. I think this is going to see play somewhere in some format. I don't know exactly how to make it work, but this is effectively a one drop in a lot of decks. And I have played a lot of creatures that look way worse than this in Legacy. So for example, I've played a lot of decks that have Crystalline Giant, which is like similarly a card that you want to get down early and have it scale up over time. And this like certainly is going to compete with like cards of that caliber. I would not be surprised to see this finding some fringe play in Legacy or Vintage somewhere, or maybe maybe like one of the, the younger formats that have weaker affinity decks. I don't expect this to be a format all-star. I expect to see this somewhere. I 100% know someone is going to donate to have me play this on my yeah, channel. Yeah, you and I are both going to end up playing this card on our channels, no doubt. Yeah, multiple times. All right, that was a lot of words about this card. I'm going to jump into the next one, which we is going to be worth a lot of words. We have oh, yeah. Seiju Who Endures. I think this thing broke Twitter when it was previewed. Let's read this one. This is a legendary land. Tap at a green. Enters the battlefield untapped, by the way. So this harkens back to that cycle of like Shinka and Iganjo that are just like basic lands plus. So ETB's untapped, taps for green. It's a forest with a little bonus. It has channel for one and a green. Discard Beseju who endures, destroy target artifact, enchantment, or non-basic land an opponent controls. That player may search their library for a land card with a basic land type, put it onto the battlefield, then shuffle. This ability costs one less to activate for each legendary creature you control. If that last line of text sounds weird, that's because this is part of a cycle and some of them cost more than two. But if you have a legendary creature that's cost green instead of one in a green, let's let's talk about all the good stuff first. Discard Beseju Who Shelters All. Channel is an activated ability from your hand. It can't be countered by counterspells. You would have to stifle this if you want to counter it. It is hidden in the hand. This isn't an activated ability from play. Uh, so for one, one green or a green colorless from your hand, uncounterable, destroy target artifact, enchantment, or non-basic land an opponent controls. This blows out Merit Lage. Anyone trying to do anything with non-basic lands, if you need your legend to stick, uh, like Reanimator could play this to blow up Caracas. They already splash green out of their sideboard. They're a deck full of legendary creatures. Reanimator could use this to destroy Rest in Peace. Uh, the Epic Storm could use this to destroy Nullrod. I'm not going to list every non-basic land artifact and enchantment with text and legacy. Do it. But it's a Do lot it. of them. The fact that this card is legendary means that you don't want to put two of them in play, but you don't mind playing more than one of them because the channel effect gets around the legendary drawback. Uh, this card also is a land on its printed card type. So loam strategies that can loop it make a lot of sense. Uh, anyone who... Um, can I can I jump in right there just real quick? Note, this is not a good repeatable land destruction spell. Right. This says that they search their library for something with a basic land type. Okay? So that means that you can get duels. So this isn't just going to be your just like two mana recurrable strip mine sort of thing. This this is a utility card. You don't want to be poxing your opponent out with this card. Right. Yep. I, I was starting with all the, the good. The the good is it is recurrable. It's un practically uncounterable and very cheap to use. The bad is... Uh, I have a point while we're on the good. Go. So I would just like to say you had me at taps for a green. Okay. Yeah. Like that was good enough. The the real important <laughs> part here is that it puts Chalice decks in the dirt. Take that, Phil. 
Get your chalices and just go home. You it don't belong in the winter's bracket while I'm anymore. Down. First Keep it was force negation, prismatic ending, and now besiege you. No one likes Chalice of the Void, Phil. No one. Yeah, I mean, on that point, since Brian brought it up, channel not being a spell, in addition to not being counterable by Force of Will, it's also not counterable by Chalice of the Void. It's also not taxed by Trinisphere. It's not taxed by Sphere of Resistance, Vintage Shops, GTFO, like all those prison strategies that try to, you know, like Ancient Tomb, make everything cost more and then ramp ahead. This card can destroy the Trinisphere or it can destroy the Workshop. And Workshop doesn't play cards with basic land types. So this is a repeatable strip mine in that matchup. But really the most important thing, like yeah, even if we're never recurring it, frequently those prison decks are a pillow fort house of cards where if you knock out one piece, you clear the Trinisphere, which unlocks your prismatic ending, which clears the chalice, and now you plow the goblin rabble master or whatever. Like it's frequently just I need to find one way through this. And Beseju will find the way through that because nothing messes with it. Except, I mean, you can sorcerer spyglass, you can pivoting needle. This is an activated ability. So you can turn it off in that way, but you need a special answer for this thing that otherwise will collapse all of those spell strategies that are based on not letting you cast spells. But getting into what Phil started talking about, player may search a library for a land card with a basic land type, put it onto the battlefield. That land is untapped. They get this mana right now. It, so it, it feels like Assassin's Trophy, but it's not basic land. It's basic land type. So they can get the, the Tundra or the Tiger or whatever. Uh, they can get a Triome etc. And that land just arrives. This is definitely a tool for picking off problems like the Dark Depths, like the Caracas, like the Workshop. It's not here to, it's not Ghost Quarter. It's not Assassin's Trophy. And I, I guess at some point, any deck will run out of lands with basic land types. If you really are in some sort of late game slog, if you're in like a loam deck that has run the opponent out of lands entirely, that's the thing. But in general, you need to think about this as a really difficult to counter Assassin's Trophy and not as like Strip Mine or or whatever. Like this is just like the best naturalized that maybe has ever been printed. It's it like one sets. of the better like modal cards ever, right? Like this can be your early game like land drop in those times where you're a little bit desperate for mana. You'd often prefer to use this as a spell in, in certain matchups, especially if, like, this is a sideboard card for you. But, like, this is an insane degree of flexibility. Produces mana, answers artifact, answers enchantment, answers lands. Like, that's four different things that it does in, in a single card. Like, that's great. I know that Brian mentioned that I'm going to be playing it to blow up Norod or whatever as a joke, but there's a secret mode about this card, and I wasn't joking about Tapster or Green. This is a land that I can board in with my Carpet of Flowers that casts Carpet of Flowers if I don't need to blow up a Norod. It makes, against those Delver decks, having additional lands is very good. It's the same idea that Vintage has always had where against the Taxing deck or the deck trying to waste you out, you board in more lands. So Besaidju really all, does it all. And I think eventually we're going to come to Phase 2 where uh, because it only destroys artifact, enchantment, non-basic land, we're going to start seeing more creature hate pieces become playable. So in order to beat storm decks, they might, uh, decks might switch to more meddling mages, for example, because they can't be destroyed by Viseju. That will be level two. Um, another level two thing here is just like a reminder that like Blood Moon exists. 
Back to May 6 exists, and like, this is not specifically for this card, this is for this entire cycle. Remember, at the end of the day, every non-basic land that you add into your deck is one more card that can get wastelanded, or shut off by a Blood Moon, or like stays tapped due to back to basics. Um, so I've seen a lot of people w hyping up the white one in this cycle as like an uncounterable way to deal 4 damage to something. And it's like, yeah, but like... Would you, would you like to have your basic planes in your death and taxes deck? Like, how, how hard are you really going to greed? Yeah, and that's going to be a really interesting deck building decision. Like, is this a land or is it a spell when you're building your deck? And to be determined, I suspect we're going to want it to be a spell that's sometimes a land, but there will be decks that play it as a land that's sometimes a spell. Uh, that'll depend on the archetype. It'll depend on a lot of stuff. This Beseju, there's not a lot of cards that hate on forest specifically that get played. But this is part of a cycle. There's one for every color. And we have historically seen just like uh, Manamo School at Water's Edge and those random cards to play around Choke. Like I, I know modern Merfolk doesn't play a whole lot of islands. There's a lot of just stupid blue lands that aren't islands uh, with random decks on them. I have cashed an open with a Mystic Gate in my Miracles deck. Oh yeah, turn that that planes into Counterspell, baby. Brian, while we're on the topic of the Legendary Land Cycle, what about the blue one? Otarwa? I don't know how to say that word. Soaring City. Legendary Land. Taps for a blue. Probably a little bit better than tapping for a green. Channel for three and a blue, so four mana total. Discard Soaring City from your hand. Return target artifact, creature, enchantment, or planeswalker to its owner's hand. This ability costs one less to activate for each legendary creature you control. Any thoughts on this? I'm not super excited about this card as like a legacy player. Uh, emphasis on legacy player there. Um, this is a, a little bit expensive for legacy standards, like even if you do control a legendary creature, but I don't think that's why this is on this list. I think Bryant has uh, his thoughts in other formats. I definitely do. So, fun fact, I play a lot of Pioneer, and one of the things that Lotus Combo regularly struggles with is Narset. This is a main deck card that you can get with Sylvan Scrying that answers Narset, and since we are the Eternal Glory podcast, and technically Pioneer is a non-rotating format, I figured I'd mention it, it's the land that answers creatures and enchantment, or I guess uh, creatures and planeswalkers, I mean. So it's a little bit different from Beseju. Its cost is literally double. But I still think being blue, and maybe Brian can speak to this a little bit more, being blue just makes it more playable than a lot of the other colors in general. Brian already talked about the added benefit of not being an island for modern merfolk. I don't know if that's going to be a factor, but I'm definitely going to get this land with Sylvan Scrying at some point. Yeah, that that's a power level of this card in that sort of deck. We didn't mention that for Baseju, like how easy it is to tutor lands with Sylvan Scrying, Expedition Map, etc. In a deck like you're talking about like Pioneer Lotus Field, if you're locked under Narset, you're probably not dying quick. You just need to figure out how to squeak past this Narset and then you're off. And and like I said, the legendary factor of this makes it so you can play more than one. You can just drop your land with the first one and then use the rest as spells. And playing five, maybe six copies of this in, in a deck that could use both modes for it and can tutor it easily. It's I, I can see these getting tried out the Baseju has like a, a really obvious power level to it that is not a surprise to anyone but we might be surprised how bounce target thing uncounterable how good that actually is okay um going out of order on the show notes uh, i'm gonna lump the white one of this cycle in now um so this is a ganjo seat of empire taps for a white 
It has channel for two colorless and a white. It deals four damage to target attacking or blocking creature. And again, gets one cheaper for each legendary creature you control. Four uncounterable damage kills a lot of things in Legacy. Like, until you start getting to Merktide Regent size threats, this answers a lot of stuff. But again, the, the question in deck building is how many lands like this can you afford to play? Every planes that you take away is just making it harder for you to beat cards like Back to Basics that are like very, very real in Legacy. It's one more card that is going to be wastelanded in the Delver matchup. Like, do you want to make yourself better at the Delver matchup because you have one more removal spell, or do you want to make yourself better at the Delver matchup by just having one more land that can't get destroyed? What if that's a reason to play Yorion, Phil? You can just add more lands to your deck. You could still play 12 planes, but now you can add other lands too. Any thoughts? Uh, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts there. I have a lot of thoughts about Yorian mana base. I'm also pretty sure Yorian says at least 20. Like, you don't have to play 80. Yeah, that's, that's like, true. You, you can play 90, 100. You can play two Yorians. Go nuts. That's not a real thing. That's a joke. In the context of Legacy, I'm not super excited about this card. I think in, like, a modern Death and Taxes deck, this is pretty darn good. Um, Legacy Death and Taxes is not hurting for removal. Like, you've got Swords, you've got Skyclave, you've got Solitudes, you have tons of ways to blink them, you sometimes even still have sideboard paths or councils, judgments. You're not hurting for removal. You're not hurting for percentage points in your Delver matchup. Like, the reason to play that deck, like, to play Death and Taxes is to bully the Delver. So I'm, I'm not super stoked on this card for Legacy. I would be very happy to be testing this card in other formats, though. One more thought on these cycle of lands from me is we talked about how they're not spells, and that gets you through Teferi as well, uh, Teferi Time Raveler. The uh, Teferi Hallbreacher Days Undoing decks are pretty popular right now across the various blue flavors. If you're able to have like Odawara, the Soaring City, and your opponent just like goes for a day's undoing in your upkeep. And if you can bounce to fairy and plow the hull breacher, then like your opponent shuffles away all their good cards and gives you a fresh seven. That's pretty nice. Like I, I think that just the way that I like to play magic, which I, I know Phil is frequently on the other side of this. The way that I like to play magic is that nothing is unbeatable and there's a tool for any situation. Just being able to Clear that to fairy. Let me breathe. Unlock the counter spells in my hand, even if it's just a bounce, even if it's temporary. I end up in a lot of situations where to fairy resolves on like turn three or four, and then on turn eight, my hand is just like force, 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 veil of summer, whatever, and just give me one little moment of breath to clear that out. There's a, so I didn't think of this until just now, but Brian, you play a lot of field of the dead ducks. I'm guessing, you know possibly five more lanes that you can play with the field that can't be the worst thing like unique names has value yeah and the more i think about this i haven't put a ton of thought into it because i just don't start brewing decks until the the cards are actually legal but i think that i will play these as spells that sometimes hit land drops for me rather than upgrading my lands into secret spells I, i'm just on the side where like, I always feel like in magic and deck building, I need to hit my lands first and I'll figure out everything else after that. And I'd rather have an extra land in the deck than an extra spell. If if it comes down to, am I playing 24 lands with one of these or 23 lands? Like, I'm going to play the 24. Okay, so 
it's funny that you mentioned that exact number so like i'm gonna go back to like an older legacy time uh when like 60 card death and taxes was the norm um that was a deck that for a very long time played 23 lands and kind of the the joke was that yeah we really want to be like a 23 and a half land deck these sorts of cards are great in that situation where you're not you're not sure like what your land count should be and you kind of want like another land but you can't really commit to it these are great cards to consider in those positions yeah the uh modal double faced lands from the zendikar block just the whole cycle where you know uh i have played in modern the the grief recursion deck uh one of the the modal double faced land cards is a like if a creature dies this turn return it to play which combos with grief but it's also a land that the lands entering the battlefield tapped on most of those have been a non-starter for a lot of eternal play but i think that all of the maybe not the white one i've definitely seen the blue red black and green of the etb untapped if you pay three life rare cycle uh, or mythic cycle whatever rarity those cards are I've seen almost all of those in action in Legacy, Vintage, and Modern. All right, moving on to the next card. Uh, it may seem weird that this is on the list, but like, bear with me for a minute. Uh, the Uncommon Twin Shot Sniper. It is three colorless and one red for a Goblin Archer 2-3 with reach. When it enters the battlefield, it deals two damage to any target. And you can channel it for one and a red to deal two damage to any target. Goodbye, Collector Oof. Yeah, Goodbye, Collector Oof, uncounterably. That's not really what I had in mind. I had in mind two different decks. I think this slots into some Painter decks, because you can use this as an early game two-mana removal spell, uh, sort of in the vein of something like Bone Crusher Giant might be used in Red Prison. And then you can bring this back later in the game repeatedly with a Goblin Welder. And I think that's some cool tech. Because that gives you a weird way to burn out your opponent through, say, an ensnaring bridge. It gives you a recursive answer to small creature decks, like, say, elves or death and taxes. And it's also just like a 2-3 that can trade with a delver. And the other place that I see this potentially happening in is goblins, where you can tap your Aether Vial on 3 to fetch up this 2-mana uncounterable removal, removal spell for things like, you know, your Delver of Secrets or whatever. And then in the end game, this can also become like a Kiki-Jiki target as well. Yeah. This isn't like shaking up the format spectacularly or anything, but you're going to see these. You're going to see these in leagues. Yeah, this is the that fringe playable bread and butter of standard legal set brings a card that might be good in these two non-tier one but beloved archetypes. Goblins and Welder are both loved uh and people will play them i know i'm sure callum smith will be playing this card and i'm sure uh eli goings will be playing this card as well just keep your eyes on those content creators can, who like the sort can, of thing can confirm saw a tweet from eli today <laughs> i didn't but i have no doubt the next card i do think is going to be a playable and this one is a fucking banger cast. folks kappa cannoneer i believe i Cannoneer. said that correctly five and a blue for an artifact creature, Turtle Warrior, love that creature type, for a 4-4 creature, Improvise. And if you've forgotten, Improvise is you can tap artifacts to help pay for this card. Ward 4, so it costs 4 mana to target this card. Uh, you can target it, it'll just get countered if you don't pay for <laughs> That's going to come up. My bad. Okay. Yeah. 
so counter it unless you pay for it, which is a huge cost. Whenever an artifact enters the battlefield under your control, put a 1-1 counter on Kappa Cannoneer, and it can't be blocked this turn. Now, imagine you're playing the deck with 8 bobbles, Mox Opal, that Brian described. You're going to be able to power out this Cannoneer very quickly, and your opponent won't have 4 additional mana to target it, and it's going to grow very quickly. This card is a bomb. Recently, I feel like Murktide Regent changed the way that I looked at Legacy, because for a long time I thought, you can't just play big dumb beaters in your deck, they have to do something else. This card is a big dumb beater that is Murktide level good, I think. Uh, obviously, it doesn't go into the tempo decks, but it's powerful. I think this card is probably scarier than that. I mean, it goes in fewer decks than Murktide, and Murktide, it, it, this is a worse card than Murktide, just in a vacuum. But in the context of a deck built to abuse it, this is Murktide named Nemesis. This card absolutely cannot be killed in any reasonable way. Like, you have to counter it on the way down. Ward 4 in Legacy, are you kidding? A lot of Legacy games end without a player having 4 mana. Like, Ward 4 is basically untargetable. When an artifact enters the battlefield, plus 1 counter and can't be blocked, That that's protection from your opponent's creatures. This has basically all of the important aspects of True Name Nemesis on it. Unlike many cards that have been printed in recent years that have some busted trigger, but say this only happens once per turn, Kappa Cannoneer does not say that. Like if you have like turn two Kappa Cannoneer, turn three Psy, cast two bobbles, this is an 8-8 eight, eight unblockable on that turn. <laughs> and like, even if you don't have the Psy, forget the Psy, just a 6-6 six, six unblockable. Or sandbag one of the bobbles, have a 5-5 unblockable this turn and a 6-6 six, six unblockable next turn. This thing is nutty bonkers. There's going to be a lot of complaining about this out of the decks that want to be able to cast it. But of course, this is a 6-drop. And Improvise, which is Convoke for Artifacts. You can tap Artifacts to cast the spell. Like, how quickly is this thing reasonably going to come down? We talked about this already with the, the Dig Through Time card, the, the Reality Heist. How quickly can you get this thing down is really going to be the question. I, I don't see this on turn one out of any reasonable draw. Uh, turn three is probably about where we're going to see this thing. Uh, I can see turn two's happening with a, a good start. Uh, it is also an artifact itself, so it helps cast the second one. This is pretty funny. Uh, or Jeez, just you saying the second one just makes me feel so dead. Right. Phil, like, so I have oh a new player God. question for you. So yeah. I'm a new player to Legacy. When you tap Chalice of the Void, it shuts off, right? That's how artifacts work? <laughs> Only Trinisphere works that way. And Howling Mine. Winter Orb? Yeah, Winter Orb. Yeah, there's a few that have the Oracle text survived the rules update that happened in 1994, you old creature. Uh, my... I will say my favorite part of this card, though, is the art, which... Oh, absolutely. I was going to talk about I it. I don't spend a lot of time looking at magic art. I think I've talked about this on the cast. I generally get a feel for what's going on in the art so I can identify it across the table, but I don't really study magic art the way that I know a lot of people do. This is like the dopiest, fogiest looking turtle face on the most badass, shredded, armored body with a back cannon. And and, and I think he has sandals on? Like <laughs> the, Blastoise. Yeah, this is just like your grandfather's head on a gigantic jacked turtle cannon body and i'm here for it i am ready to lose to this card and i am ready to beat people to death with this card oh we should also point out that this is in the neon dynasty commander release this is not in the set you're not gonna have to play against this in draft uh and you're not gonna be able to open it if you're opening draft boosters i believe set boosters and collector boosters have the commander cards in them like one of the slots is for that but uh 
however you get your cards that may come up for you is this going to be another one of those 50 dollar magic online cards because like oh god almost certainly <laughs> yeah absolutely thanks that's card gonna order. mean these are hard to get in paper too uh i'm not loving this because this is going to be a staple like i could see yeah. this card being 40 bucks for a rare yeah i, I could see it occupying the space that ethereal forager did which did hit those insane heights before Marktide just obsoleted it. But yeah, this is probably going to be tough to get on Magic Online. So I read a pretty sweet combo with this next card, Swift Reconfiguration. It's a one white enchantment aura flash enchant creature or vehicle enchant permanent is a vehicle artifact with crew five and loses all other card types. Well, I have a question for you, Brian. Yeah. Do you know any creature that taps for a green mana that says you can put a minus one, minus one counter on it and untap it? Oh, I'm familiar. It's called Devoted Druid. Well, I have a surprise for you. If you put this on Devoted Druid, do you know what you get? Uh, well, it's not a creature unless you crew it. So you end up with an artifact, which is not beholden to summoning sickness, that doesn't care if it has minus a billion, minus a billion, because it's not a creature. Is there something you can do with all that? Well, you can make a whole lot of green mana. What could you do with roughly infinite green mana? Uh, green Sun Zenith. Yeah, for for anything. Yeah, you you can do a lot of stuff. Uh, cast Emerald. Like how Phil was like, what's the most fair thing I can think of? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm like, uh, you could look. Keep... I had to lean into the bit there. Yeah, you could cast four Force of Nature's and keep them alive in your upkeep. Yeah. So this is a pretty fast to assemble infinite mana combo. Like th this is a a turn three infinite mana combo. This is turn two if you started with a turn one mana dork as well. Legacy has a lot of interaction. I don't know that I expect to see that combo there. But I, I have already seen screenshots uh, from uh, infamous combo brewer Jax of like trying to make that combo work in Legacy. So you guys jump straight into Devoted Druid combo. And we didn't even talk about the fact that this is a premium removal spell. This yes, costs, that's what I yeah, was just going to say. This costs one white. It has flash. You know what other cards has those two words on it functionally? Source to Plowshares. Path a to Exile. Path to Exile. That's right. And enchant creature or vehicle. Uh, I mean, it's not going to enchant many vehicles, but enchant creature becomes a non-creature with crew five. So it keeps all its abilities, which I'm going to talk about as a pro and a con in a second. Like you can't just play four of these in Bant and replace swords to plowshares because if you pay two mana to swift reconfiguration that Thalia, she's still in play. She still makes things cost more. She's just not a creature anymore. So uh, this doesn't go in a deck like that. It, going in the other direction, if you're the Death and Taxes player and your opponents like plow your Thalia, you're like, I'll reconfigure her into a car. And it fizzles the swords to plowshares because it's not a creature anymore. And your removal spell just saved your lock piece. And like there might be some, I, I, I don't know. We've talked a lot about what could go in an 80 card Death and Taxes deck. I don't really think this is going to happen. At the base level, before we get into like crazy combos, this is a removal spell that could also be a save spell, depending on what you're trying to remove or save and how your deck is configured. Um, Boros Painter is a thing. You could reconfigure your Painter Servant or your Goblin Welder in response to removal, and then just keep welding, keep painting. Uh, this, this is like a pretty cool thing here. Uh, you could reconfigure... I was about to say you could reconfigure your Argothian Enchantress, but that has actual Shroud, not Hexproof, so you can't use that. Uh, but I could see this in Enchantress, where being an enchantment matters. 
there's a lot of fringe little interesting things here. Uh, I suspect the legacy card pool removal is good enough that we're not going to see this unless it's breaking something. But there's a lot about this card, a lot of nuance before we hit the devoted druid combo part of the conversation. Also a commander card, by the way. God damn it. All right. <laughs> Next card. All right. Looks like this is an uncommon, so I think I'm safe. Um, this one is Secluded Courtyard. Um, it is a land, taps for a colorless, and as it enters the battlefield, choose a creature type, add one mana of any color, spend this only to cast creatures of the chosen type, or activate an ability of a creature or creature card of the chosen type. Uh, this is just another rainbow land for all of the various tribal decks that exist in Legacy, and this is kind of an upgrade for many of them because a lot of these creatures have activated abilities that these lands previously could not activate. Yeah, this is just a, a better unclaimed territory, uh, just strictly better, right? I'm not missing anything. Unclaimed territory has all the same text as this without the activation clause. So yeah, uh, unless there's like some random card that cares about rarity or something like that. Uh, yeah, you you would have to go really deep to find a situation. Yeah, I think unclaimed territory is also an uncommon. Like I, I think that oh, really? they just wow. made that card, but better. If you had a tribal deck that was slightly short on lands for some reason you know look into this or if you want to play your five color sliver greed pile congratulations you've got yet another one out there yeah slivers already had 12 of these now they have 16 because uh, they had sliver hive as well but like humans i know the mana i have played some amount of humans and ancient ziggurat and uh yeah ancient ziggurat kind of hurts because it doesn't cast your either vial and like uh, there's there's just like problems with the the lands beyond the cavern and the unclaimed territory. Uh, you you start to like pillar of the parents can cast a lot of cool cards, but can't cast your either vial or, and like ancient ziggurat has problems. Uh, like n it doesn't cast any cyborg cards. So yeah, this is a big upgrade to anyone who wants that sort of thing. Yeah, I'm glad you said humans. The first time I read this, I immediately thought of Eddie Zumara. So shout out to Eddie. Another playable. The first time I saw this card, Eddie was tweeting it, and I hadn't seen Eddie tweet in months. <laughs> he came out of retirement for this. Yeah, the final one that we'll very briefly mention in the context of Legacy is Roadside Reliquary. Uh, this is a land that taps for a colorless, and you can pay two and sacrifice it. Draw a card if you control an artifact. Draw a card if you control an enchantment. So, presumably, if you are playing a deck that has both enchantments and artifacts, such as legacy lands this could be a card that you consider for your deck or any deck with ursa saga <gasps> bum 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 <laughs> surprise that's actually kind of gross yeah you activate ursa saga once and this is on just make a construct draw two cards i mentioned this to phil before we went live and i don't know if it's playable enough for lands but they could easily play it one of the problems with lands right now is there's so many good lands even though they play like 36 of them or 34 of them nowadays it's actually really difficult finding enough slots to add in all the broken lands. Like people are cutting, um, what is it called? Glacial chasm nowadays. That's like a card that people debate on if it's good enough or not. So do you think roadside reliquary is better than glacial chasm? I don't know, but it's interesting that it slots perfectly into lands. They don't need a change to adapt to it. And it's just a draw to like, that could be good enough. I expect to see this one tested and then left to the side lands isn't really hurting for card advantage between Valakut Exploration, Loam, Urza Saga, etc. I, I don't really think this is going to land in lands. I, I could see it in just some 
like a, a fun of in Echo Breacher, Aeon, Echo Vans Saga deck or eight cast or or a colorless deck of some kind that's playing Urza Saga right. that like has a lot of room for flex lands. Yeah, like the the mono brown uh, Mystic Forge Turbo deck. Maybe it goes in there. I, I don't know. Uh, I think that this is. I mean, the fact it comes into play untapped and taps for mana is the only thing saving it. If this had ETB tapped on it, I would say it's just stone unplayable. I think we'll see this as a one of in a couple random shells and then quickly fall off. But it is a, a cool enough card to consider. Hey, Brian, did you know that you are already dead? Yeah. How about this one? They power crept. Okay, but before we get to this, this is kind of the break where okay. we are go going to transition to talking about cards that are popper relevant. Uh, if you're just here for Legacy, it's been fun to have you. Thanks for sticking through our BS. If you're here for popper, let's talk about You Are Already Dead. More than the popper playability of this card, I, I guess this one sort of bleeds the line into Legacy because Legacy is where you play Cabal Therapy. If you play Cabal Therapy and you know you've already won, you can name You Are Already Dead and get sick rubbins on your magic online opponent this card used to be abandoned hope which alphabetically was also the first card on the cabal therapy drop down list it just like naturally spewed off abandoned hope when the game was over but now i, I think this is worth typing out uh, i think this is worth a couple of seconds in the search to say you are already dead and then kill your opponent with us oracle all right i'm gonna go ahead and read the card <laughs> So it's <laughs> one matter. black instant. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to assume that everyone already knows this from all of the memes. One black for an instant. Destroy target creature that was dealt damage this turn. Draw a card. And as a mono black control player at heart, holy hell do I love this card. So in Popper, there is a card called Kuambaj Witches. Black, black. And it taps to deal one damage to a target of your choice. And then your opponent gets to do the same thing. So you get to tap, ping something and then just one mana, kill it, draw a card. That is a powerful synergy. Whether or not at the end of the day that's powerful enough and consistent enough for Popper, that's going to be the real question. But I can tell you that uh, in two days when this set is online, this is the first card that I'm making a video with. Strong. So outside of having the sweet name, the art is so good. That's one of the oh, things absolutely. I love about Neon Dynasty is I feel like a lot of the art reminds me of art from when I was a kid. Uh, recently, I feel like a lot of the digital art blends together. But with Kamigawa, it's definitely separate in my mind. Like, I look at the art and it just stands out. It feels more iconic to magic. Like, there's something in the focus. There's a bunch of cool stuff going around in the background. But it doesn't feel super digital to me. Like, it feels different. This set has, like, both anime energy and cyberpunk energy in a way that just really gives this set an awesome identity. And I love the look of these cards. Moon Circuit Hacker is a one in a blue, so two mana, for an enchantment creature human ninja. What a card type. Two one creature. Ninjutsu for a single blue. Whenever Moon Circuit Hacker deals combat damage to a player, you may draw a card. If you do discard a card unless Moon Circuit Hacker entered the battlefield this turn. Brian, you are our resident fairies card. Before I give you the floor, I would just like to say this card is complete bullshit. Uh, that, that's it. You can talk now. Yeah, this card is really good. The I'm interested to see where this lands. I haven't actually put any work into it in the the tempo fairy shell. But if you're not familiar with Popper, basically the deck uses like Fairy Seer and Spellstutter Sprite and evasive creatures that gain value when they come into play. 
uh, Augur of Bolas. You can look at the top bottom three cards of your deck. And then it uses Ninja of the Deep Hours to put those back in your hand, connect with Ninja, draw a card, then replay the ETB trigger and get it again. And that's the, the core of the deck. It's awesome. I've played hundreds, maybe thousands of matches with that deck over the last 10 years, and it, it is my favorite popper deck. And this card ninjutsus for half as much as ninja. It has the same power. The one toughness might matter a lot because the type of cards that get played against fairies in the format are like electricery and suffocating fumes. Uh, the the witches that Phil mentioned, uh, like there's a number of one threes uh, in fairies mirrors. Frequently, it's like who has the most auger of boluses versus the most ninjas because like augers a one three and there there's like a lot of that second point of toughness matters a lot but i think the one point of mana is going to matter more and i i don't know that this replaces ninja of the deep hours but it may supplement it we might just see lists with six ninjas so they're just always ninjing and i don't know th this is pretty interesting the deck is pretty tight on space and I don't know how much better than Ninja of the Deep Hours this card actually is, but it's very interesting. I think it's going to make the push for mono blue fairies, because right now there's a lot of splash colors. Like you have Demir, or is it? I guess there's only the two. But then you have mono blue fairies, and they play Fairy Miscreant, which in my opinion isn't that powerful of a card. With mono blue, you get to play eight ninjas and all the good blue cards. Yeah, this one's good in mono blue for sure. Uh, my my brain goes straight to Izzet and Demir. Those are the the two that I like the most. But mono blue is sort of a balls to the wall version of the fairy tempo deck, and it it'll certainly get played there. From my understanding, is mono blue is the version you want to play if you're looking to win the mirror, and the splash versions are the ones that are better against the rest of the format. So when fairies is the best deck in the format, you want to be on mono blue. From reading you know, the popper subreddit and the Alex Elman discord. This is what I've gathered. How true it is. I've never played the fairies mirror. So whatever. Fascinating. I like having removal spells in my deck in tempo mirrors. The hive mind can have its own opinions. Phil, you've been trying to talk for a while. Yeah. I don't think this card replaces Ninja of the deep hours because Ninja of the deep hours is much better at being a repeatable source of card advantage than this one is. The first time this thing hits it, it truly draws you a card and every subsequent times it is a loot instead and so i think this is numbers five and six in some of the archetypes or five through eight in some of the archetypes but i i do not think this is just like an objectively better version of a card that already exists that this card is different right and they did something with ninjutsu in this set by and large where there are a lot of incentives to the ninja arriving this turn and Gavin Verhe, slightly before a preview season started, like the week before we started getting preview cards, he released a video of like, hey, did you know you can ninjutsu more than once in the same turn? Wink, wink. And uh, he was like, I don't know why you'd want to do this, but the rules do allow. And he released a whole YouTube video just about like corner cases where you might want to like attack with a creature, pick it up, and then pick up the creature you just ninjed in. And like, if you have two of these, you will always draw a card. Or if you have this and a different ninja, uh, you can always pick this up for a single blue and then put it back in for single blue. Like uh, This is a, a draft archetype. There's a bunch of things that like ETB with a menace counter. And then when they connect, you can remove the menace counter. And then if you ninja pick it back up, then it regains its menace counter. Like it's a thing. 
and uh but but yeah that seems like really tricksy for a, po- a format as powerful as popper so i'm gonna take this opportunity to insert the other ninja um this one is not as big of a banger but this is where we get into some of those like multiple ninjutsu cases so this is a moon spare moon snare specialist it's three and a blue for a two two uh ninjutsu three when it enters the battlefield return up to one target creature to its owner's hand so I, I don't think this one is like a banger, but I think this one might slip in from time to time. Just like being able to get that bounce value repeatedly in this like weird, uncounterable way is a cool interaction to me. Yeah, the ETB trigger compared to Misblade Shinobi, which when it connects, you get non-summon, uh, is this is this is a thing like they want you to attack with. Uh, your moon circuit hacker ninja this in bounce something then ninja hacker back in and draw a full card like this is what they want you to do this is this is the the gimmick here and i I, like you said i'm not sure it's good enough for popper because you do need to have an unblocked creature though this does let you if you have enough mana you could just sort of like chuck your team against a wall of four fours out of affinity and like whichever one goes unblocked, you ninja this in, you can bounce the moon circuit hacker that was blocked by the 4-4, and then ninja that in under the moon snare specialist to connect with it. And you can really dance around like big blockers with your ninjas this way. This is kind of cool. It's just very expensive. I, I like I think it's two mana intensive, but I would feel bad not mentioning this card because it's such a neat combat trick because you can return your opponent's blockers you can return your stuff to reuse it like this is this is neat yeah and i mentioned it when we were talking about the toughness on moon circuit hacker you frequently do end up in board states where you have two or three ninja of the deep hours in play staring down two or three augur of bolus and this card would bust that board state right open all right so the next card is spirited companion uh, one in a white for a 1-1 one, one enchantment creature dog. And this is a white elvish visionary. Enters the battlefield, draw a card. So sick. Very good boy. Good good boy. Potentially best boy. And there's a lot of ephemerate decks running around in Popper. Ephemerate is just like a premier card. Uh, it's just so much value when you have ETB creatures. And it's very possible that one of the ephemerate decks of some kind will want this card. Yeah, this card is dope. It's just material on the board. We don't really need to tell it, the Legacy Podcast listeners about Elvish Visionary, which is a Legacy staple in the deck that it goes in, and Spirited Companion is the same card, but is a white dog instead of a green elf. Much better, in my opinion. So the next card is busted, and I can't wait to play with it. Mirror Shell Crab. Five blue blue. So, Phil, this thing's pretty much uncastable, right? Why would we ever want to play this? Well, it's an artifact creature crab that's a 5-7. Ward 3, so you have to pay 3 mana to target, um, or it will be countered. And it has channel for 2 and a blue. So it puts itself to the graveyard. You can discard it from your hand. Counter target spell or ability unless its controller pays 3. So it has a mana leak stifle thing to it. So... There's a lot to unpack here. So one, Popper is getting its first playable stifle effect. That's huge. Granted, it does come at the mana leak clause of your opponent can pay three mana, right? 
but it puts itself to the graveyard. It's a huge, thick boy. It is a big boy that's pretty expensive to remove, which means it's a perfect exhumed target. So you can mana leak your opponent and then exhume this thick crab right into play. Uh, so it, it can also counter storm. You know, I mentioned the stifle ability, but for me, the biggest thing is when you're playing uh, Cycle Storm and a lot of combo in the format, Brian will disagree with this, but I don't care what Brian thinks. It kind of sucks from the combo player perspective because Dress doesn't hit Spell Stutter Sprite, which is the most crucial spell in the entire matchup. In order to play it, you have to play just trash like Despise, and it's really difficult to interact with Spell Stutter. Mirashell Crab does that while also answering Relic of Progenitus or Bajookabog or a bunch of other different things while playing perfectly in your backup plan of Exhum. I am so stoked to play this. I want four as soon as I can get them. Holy smokes. I think there's so many decks that this can fit into. Like, this is a very reasonable Tron card as well, right? This is like a, a three mana thing that is playable in the early game, or once you have your mana fixed and your big mana, like this is a reasonable sized threat as well. This is also something that your opponent probably doesn't get to fight back against, right? Like this is absolutely one of those like nice dispel idiot moments where like you have the interaction that your opponent can't fight against. Yeah, Popper's interaction of uh, dispel, pyro, and hydroblast, like they're very good at having efficient counter spells many of the ones we play in legacy are commons the only way to fight back over a mirror shell crab is to pay the three uh, i was gonna say you could sh uh, crab shell right back <laughs> but that also costs three you should just pay the three yeah that that's pretty exciting like countering a mnemonic wall trigger that was gonna rebuy the ghostly flicker and that's like mid combo of azorius familiars or whatever uh like that sort of effect could be game breaking all right so next up on our list, we have Moonsnare Prototype. Uh, this is one blue for an artifact. You can tap an untapped artifact or creature you control uh, to add a colorless. And you can channel for four colorless and a blue to discard this thing. And the owner of target non-land permanent puts it on the top or bottom of their library. This card is underrated. I think that this could actually be like multi-format playable. Uh, it might not be immediately, but to me, this is the sort of playability of like a lot of the lantern cards where somebody doesn't figure it out for a while, possibly. But this thing's just blue soul ring. Uh, obviously, it's not one for one, but at its power level, it's pretty close. I'm pretty hyped on this. I think this is going to be a card that when this is seeing play, the deck this is seeing play in is probably unhealthy this is going to be one of those cards where like if this is seeing play this is going to be accelerating out some absolute bs this is like your like is there a deck that wants eight spring leaf drums and if so how much damage can that deck do right and the the cost here like there's some give and take it costs blue which is not a given in the affinity shell that just has to play as many artifact lands as it can though i with the modern horizons 2 cycle you could probably build a mono blue artifact land mana base at this point but it would still come into play on turn two uh if your land etb is tapped and it taps an artifact not a creature so that that's another factor like turning your icker wellsprings into mana is a thing like put those to work but it only makes colorless so you can't like 
dispel off of this the way you can off of Springleaf Drum. Yeah, it, I, I agree with Phil that this doesn't just slide into Affinity as it currently exists, but if this card exists in the format, it's going to be really miserable. And just how free is this channel ability? Like, if this card can just straight up replace Springleaf Drum, like, if if the channel ability is so good that decks start playing four of this first and then Springleaf Drum is the extra card, like, uh, if this is... If Drum is Moonsnare Prototype 5 and 6 rather than the other way around, I think that deck's going to be unhealthy. But we'll see. Maybe it's fine. Maybe it's busted. It's one of those cards that's not going to be like, yeah, okay, there's that. It's going to be nothing or or insane. Yeah, this is not a, oh, maybe I'll play one of those in my artifact deck. No. <laughs> Speaking of artifact decks... This next card Twitter was really, really excited about that I think I'm a little bit lower on, but let's say what it does first. Kami of Industry, four and a red, so five mana total for a creature spirit, three, six. When Kami of Industry enters the battlefield, return target artifact with mana value three or less from your graveyard to the battle battlefield. It gains haste. Sacrifice it at the beginning of the next end step. This is a red mold drifter that requires more work than a mold drifter. Like, exactly. This is very good if you are playing Wellspring type cards. I think this is a fantastic common. I think this will see some amount of pauper play. Like six is a big butt. Six means you block most fair creatures in combat. You know, you're gonna block the the mirror enforcer type cards. Like you can block four fours and five fives as well. Um and it's hard to get this with red removal. So I think there's a pretty big gap here. So five mana is pretty expensive in my opinion. And I don't see you ever playing this in an ephemerate deck or ghostly flicker deck. I could be wrong, but I don't see it seeing play there. So the incentive to keep on flickering it to get back at Corral Springs, it's, it's not there for me. I could be wrong. It could exist. I don't see it yet. But I think the biggest issue is... Brian mentioned how the format can be defined by the blast effects. This just eats it to Hydroblast for five mana, which it's pretty costly. A lot of those larger decks tend to not play cards that lose to Hydroblast for that reason. So the biggest thing that I like why I'm not super excited about this card is just like the artifact decks that already exist. Like this is a five mana card that is not going to win you the game. This is just a five mana card that probably just like gives you some value and I don't know that we need more of that in the artifact decks. Like, the affinity deck is already pretty darn good at killing in various ways. Like, you know, uh, Atog might have gotten the axe, but, you know, Disciple Munitions is still a thing. Just drawing a whole bunch of cards and vomiting 4-4s is still a thing. I don't think you want this in a deck like affinity, so this is going to be its own separate deck. Is that going to be better than something that already exists? Eh, I'm not so sure. I'm going to shout out the art real quick on this one, too. This is some sort of, like, ape yeti. I count five arms on this thing, and it's forging swords out of its own fiery belly. Yeah, this art is dope. Yeah, big General Kenobi vibes. All right, Um, next up, we do have another artifact card. Uh, this is a seven mana Thundersteel Colossus. Uh, it is a vehicle, 7-7, seven, seven, Trample Haste, crew two if the iron giant was a ninja it would be thunder steel colossus this card doesn't look good to me i'm gonna say that right now 
Um, so this is something that I thought could potentially see play in a blue Tron deck where you are already wanting to play like two two cards like Moldrifter. Um, this is this is big and it's not difficult to crew. This might show up sometimes. I'm gonna play devil's advocate here a little bit. Why would this? Because the the larger Tron decks, if they're looking for a big payoff right now, they tend to play the Cascading Colossus, or if they're not playing that, Limog's Crusher. So those are the cards that this is competing with. And those cards don't require a crew. Granted, they don't have haste, but I don't know if Tron actually cares about haste. Um, what would the counter arguments to be to play this over either of those options? I don't want to say that it has tempo attached to it, because like this is a seven drop. Um, like maybe that's the wrong term. There is a good amount of velocity and fear when a card like this enters the battlefield. Like this is a very swift clock. Assuming you've done some chip damage over the course of a game with your Muldrifters or whatever, um, this can very realistically be a two-turn clock, whereas I think the, the turn that you take off for Summoning Sickness is very real with some of those other cards. I don't know. I, I wanted to mention this card. It's big. It's real big. It's real fast. I don't think this is a format changer. I think I'm going to queue into this from time to time. Maelstrom Colossus cascades into it. He gets right in. The next card I think is actually very, very, very good. Reckoner's Bargain. One in a black oh, for yeah. an instant. Has an additional cost to cast this spell. Sacrifice an artifact or creature. You gain life equal to the sacrifice permanent's mana value. Draw two cards. So we have Deadly Dispute's Cousin. Instead of making a treasure token, you gain life equal to the mana value. We've already seen Deadly Dispute really change the texture of the format. I know that a lot of people in Pauper have been trying the Red-Black Relay Storm deck, and they're trying to play Erker Wellspring to help support Deadly Dispute. But one of the issues is that you only had Deadly Dispute to sacrifice Wellspring. Well, now you have eight of this effect. And unlike Night's Whisper, this gains life, so it helps your burn matchup. This card is going to see play in Affinity over the other one that they're playing right now. I can't think of what it's called right now. I'm sorry. It's like a fifth Deadly Dispute. Uh, this card's very powerful, but it does have Deadly Dispute in front of it. Yeah, I think Deadly Dispute is better. Big air quotes there. I think Deadly Dispute is the one that you go to first. The ability to store that treasure token over multiple turns is really good. And the thing with Reckoner's Bargain is that, like you're somewhat frequently going to cast, like, be sacrificing things that, co like, cost zero or one. So you're not gaining a lot of life, but you do have the possibility of just, like, gaining those just, like, two or three points of life that you need to get one more attack in to kill your opponent. Um, this this card's good. This is going to see play. Yeah, where Deadly Dispute is thought cast, this is Village Rights. And it, sacking an artifact gives it that combo flare that village rights doesn't have and the extra life points might matter but uh I, I imagine any deck that's playing deadly dispute and any deck that's playing village rights will be considering this card as additional copies of those two cards so there's some fringe mono black decks that are like sacrifice themed uh, i don't know the names of the cards in these decks but like there's something that dies and it makes like a squirrel and there's a couple other things of that nature that get value from dying like you could play 12 draw twos in that deck now that's a lot of draw twos. It's draw 24. That's peer into the abyss. That's good stuff. And I think now we're going to go ahead and move on to our final card of uh, sort of our set review going over thing, whatever you want to call this. 
and that's careful cultivation. So this is two and a green for an aura that can enchant an artifact or creature. As long as enchanted permanent is a creature, gains plus one plus three, has reach, and tap for two green mana. As if that wasn't enough, you can also channel for one and a green, discard this thing, make a green 1-1 one, one human token monk uh, that has tap for a green. Why is so this good, Phil? It's, uh, it's, it's pretty good. So you can have a two mana mana dork, or you can have a three mana thing that makes one of your creatures tap for two. Is there perhaps something in the context of legacy that gets a little bit busted if you let it tap for two mana? Oh. Well, I don't think it has to be legacy. I think this combo is Sorry, I meant Popper. Popper. Phil is uh, is shouting out Peely Pala right now, which is a creature that untaps for two colorless to make a mana of any color, which is was meant to, in the context of that format, be a cute way to fix colors, but has actually just been broken. Just there there has never been a fair use of Peely Pala in history. Even in its own draft format, you put power of fire on that thing and just roast your opponents. Like it, it's, but Peely Pala, yeah, is infinite mana of as many colors as you want with this thing. It's pretty powerful. Uh, I mean, like Wall's combo kind of already does this. Freed from the real is already in the format. Uh, Galvanic Alchemist is already on the format, and they're less specific than needing Peely Pala to carry. Like you can put those on any creature that taps for more than one mana. Uh, I, I'm not sure this really changes the texture of the format, but it is cool that another combo exists like that. I don't know what you do with it. That's that's Brewer's territory, um, but it's it's a cool thing you can do. You cast Maelstrom Colossus, and it cascades into that 7-7 seven, seven haste idiot, and then you go in. That's the plan. That's the format. Yeah. All right. This card and the turtle we already talked about and some of the uncommon and rare cards that we've seen I'm excited about for EDH, which is not a format we talk about much on this, but I have a Karuga deck. Uh, Yurok is the general and Karuga is the companion. This is another, like all of these new channel cards are ways to cheat the mana cost for Karuga. All your cards have to cost three or more. And this is a ramp spell that you get under Karuga. And I'm really excited about that. Oh, that's a cool use. I like that. Now that the full set's been released, I do have to admit, I love the set. I think the set's a complete banger. Like, shoutouts to the design team. I really like it. There's two small areas that I'm secretly a little disappointed about, and they're both for Popper. One, we returned to Kamigawa. We did not get any new Zubera. That was something I was holding off recording the video for, because I was like, I want to see if they make any new Zubera for the Zubera Storm deck. Kamigawa forgot about its coolest tribe. Womp womp. And then the second thing is, and I know that they've said they're probably never going to do it again, but I was holding out hope. I wanted more splice onto Arcane. The Total Storm deck in Popper, you make your own Lotus Field and then you use Ideas and Bound, peer through depths, and you untap your your made Lotus Field. And eventually you play, uh, what is it called? Stream of Thought and deck your opponent. I really, really wanted another playable for that deck, and I thought that this was a chance for getting a new splice card, and it just didn't work out. So a little bit bummed there. Yeah, I think Wizards cut their losses on splice onto Arcane because that is among the most like, uh, cannibalistic things that there's ever been mechanics where it's just like it just doesn't function outside of its own block. There's what like thirteen cards total that are Arcane spells to splice your Arcane spells onto uh, in the thousands, tens of thousands of Magic cards that exist. Uh, like they need to just like 
start chucking those into every commander set forever if they want to support it. I don't think like doubling the pool from 13 to 20 would really help anyone other than you specifically working on that, which I mean, it's it's cool to put something for everyone in there, but I think the number of new players who would feel bad when they realize how few arcane spells there are to splice would massively outweigh the Brian Cooks of the world who just wanted one more. Yeah, that, I don't think we're seeing that again. Yeah. And I'd like to do something a little bit different uh, this episode. So, guys, we've done a few spoiler episodes. We don't do them that often. But every once in a while, we have a pretty big miss. Like, we're like, we didn't think this card is going to be that good. But if you could pick one card that we've talked about today, or maybe a card we didn't talk about, that you think that we could possibly be very wrong on, what would that card be? I think that the range on Baseju is impossible to predict. Like, we have not seen a card like that. And it's obviously good. And like, I I think that we're still live, that it is just format ruining, or it's just a disenchant. And it's not actually that special. Like, I think both of those things are live. I mean, format ruining is a little dramatic. I don't think it's going to ruin a format, but like, it could be paradigm shifting, or it could just be like a pretty good nat- naturalize. And I I think we're pretty safe saying it's somewhere in the middle, but uh, it it's live to just go either of those crazy directions. I will admit one thing that I'm kind of bummed about is it encourages people to play bug midrange and vintage, which is just like the lamest vintage deck you can play in my opinion, but people are going to play it now because it's essentially like playing legacy shardless and it's like technically a vintage deck, but it's super boring. <laughs> yeah, some people think dying on turn one is boring. Uh, that's just player preference. Yeah, well, they'd be wrong. I mean, the first time that my underworld breach gets besaged when I'm just rolled up with multiple counter spells, I'm gonna quit magic. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm not looking forward to doing that. But uh, it, it is. I, I think it's okay. Like, it's not a free deck building spot. They have to main deck naturalize in their deck where every card matters. Like, like, do you cut a preordain for this? Do you cut an actual land? Uh, maybe you can't cast Leovold because you cut a fetch land and now you have Besaju. Like, the deck building cost is real and vintage. But we'll see where that lands. How about you, Phil, with my original question? Um, my pick is also Besaju. Um, I think we evaluated this card, like, very specifically within the lens of Legacy. And I think this card will have huge impacts on other formats, like especially modern. Like in modern, you have decks like Amulet Titan that this card might be good for and or good against. Uh, Testing will probably like very quickly show that off. Um, I think that card could do really strange things to modern um, because modern is also defined by some other artifacts and enchantments, um, like all the various things that you see in Hammer Time. And th- that card, coupled with Renin 6, which is still like somehow okay in modern, like that is a very strange combination to be able to have that like recurring disenchant or recurring land destruction effect against like bounce lands. Like that, that is admittedly a little gross. Um, so I would be willing to say that Boseju might be better than we thought it was outside of the legacy context. Yeah, we did not talk about modern, and I see Boseju like I see Plague Engineer, 
which is that if Basaju collapses your deck, you're up to no good. And like it's only upside to check that, or at least give people tools to check it. Uh, I, I don't mind a amulet player getting blown out when their bounce land gets Basaju'd. Like, I'm really okay with that. Or uh, the number of turn three Trons is going to dramatically decrease. I'm okay with that. Man, if I'm playing the artifact deck, though, and my opponent just plays, like, turn two Renin six, turn three, blow up my thing, plus Renin six, get it back, and that's just, like, uncounterable, and I can't interact well with that, I'm gonna be mad. <laughs> yeah, but they're still ramping you. Like, that's the thing. If your deck is built fairly, it's not a big deal. Yeah, if you're an artifact deck with no basic land types, if you're just on, like, mono Eldrazi temples and Urza sagas and whatever, then you're up to no good. You fall into that category of someone who needs to be checked by a card like Paseju. Uh, I do think that the Ren and Six interaction in particular is a little wonky, but we'll we'll see. Uh, it's also a two-mana effect. Like, spending two mana in Modern is a lot to ask. Uh, when my opponent goes Ragavan, Ren and Six, one mana Paseju. Now we're now I'm mad, but oh no, <laughs> oh no 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 yeah. no no. Uh, but uh, again, that's just like you know, maybe Pithing Needle Stock goes up, maybe Sorceress Spyglass it just goes into all of those artifact decks from now on. Uh, I I don't know. Uh, it, it's it's a card that will exist now, and it might shift the paradigm for some people who are up to no good. I think the card that we could likely be wrong on is Kappa Cannoneer. I think the card is really, really good, but I think that it's like either going to be an 8 or a 9 or an absolute 0. I don't know if we're going to get much in between. We'll, we'll know in a week and a half. Yeah, and uh, one side note, I know that we're going really long today, and I'm sorry, guys, but I'm sure the two of you saw Magic hit its first year at a billion dollars. It was up 42% from last year. And there's a lot of speculation on why, if it's fire design. I think a lot of it is the partnerships or or using IPs. So last year we saw Strixhaven, which you could argue is a Harry Potter ripoff. We have The Walking Dead that came out. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons. They're apparently working on a Lord of the Rings set. Well, they snuck one into this set that's technically not an IP, but uh, Kepatech Wrecker. That thing's a Ninja Turtle. Uh Super excited about I'm going to buy a Japanese Fallen Ninja Turtle, and it's going to go in my, like, this is just a cool card binder. Yeah, Master Splinter is in the set, too. There's a, a lord that's a rat samurai, or rat ninja. What? I missed that. I will also buy yeah, a Splinter. Yeah, it's in here, too. They they give us a lot of little tastes like that. Uh, and then you mentioned, uh, you didn't mention Stranger Things, Godzilla. There's a bunch of crossovers that, I mean, cool. Uh, small indie company. Maybe they can give us a pro tour. All right. Closing thoughts. We love this set. We're excited to see these cards in action. Get out there. Play your legacy. Play your pauper. Tweet us cool screenshots of all the ridiculous things that you do. We'll love to see them. 